Hello, my friend. This is Joe Bakmotsky, and welcome to Simplify Cancer podcast. Today, I'm talking to Suzanne Chambers. And Suzanne is a psychologist who has been helping folks with cancer for many years. And she took all that knowledge and all that experience and put it into a fantastic book called Facing the Tiger that is specifically aimed at men dealing with prostate cancer. But most of the insights she shares in this book are universal. Suzanne is practical, down to earth, and profound. I promise you're going to love it. Suzanne, I, I know you've done so much more than writing this book, but please tell about yourself. I mean, about okay. who you are, what you do, and what you're passionate about. Sure, sure. So my background is that I'm both a registered nurse and a registered psychologist, and I've done many things in my um, professional history. I started out as a registered nurse in intensive care, and uh, that was a very dramatic profession. And then I ended up working for the Cancer Council in Queensland, working with people with cancer in the community and developing community-based support services. And it was really a journey of learning for me that started then. This was back in, uh, I'm just thinking now, 1989, I started working with people with cancer. My best teachers were the people who'd had cancer themselves, who were very generous in sharing their stories with me. And the habit I got into was I would go away and learn what the professions and the research had to say, come to some conclusions about what might help people, and then I would bring it back to my community of people who had experienced cancer and share that with them and say, what makes sense to you out of this and how would you use this information? And so it was a really collaborative process that developed my way of thinking over from all those years ago, so obviously that's a couple of decades ago, that informed how I think about coping with cancer and what I say to people with cancer when I'm trying to be of assistance to them. That's, that's fantastic, Suzanne, that you talk about it as a, as a learning experience. And when you looked at the research and you tried to bring it into practice and get feedback from real-life people, did you find that, that in terms of the research out there, that it, did it align with how people try to deal with it you know, in, in real life, so to speak? I think it did. Um, the way that I look at research is that it's having cancer is really confusing for most people because it's a shocking experience for most of us, you know, and um, trying to make sense of it is really hard because you're distressed and you're anxious. And so the point of psychological research in this area, I always say, is to help us with a map and so to help us go, aha, uh -huh, That is why I feel that this way. That is what this means. That's what's driving that. Therefore, some ideas for how I can help myself might be this. So from my point of view, if anyone is doing psychological types of research with people with cancer, they have to be very focused on being creative in finding solutions for people uh, to help them in a difficult circumstance manage the best they can. Most people are doing the best they can and most people do well, but sometimes you can get overwhelmed and that's when having someone who's been able to put a bit more of an analytic frame on it can give you tips that you can try out and experiment with to see how you go and be open to that. Yeah, absolutely. And it kind of sounds like your approach is that you are essentially guiding people to find solutions themselves 
Is that right? Absolutely, because I think, well, I don't know about you, but, you know, the last thing but mostly I need is someone bossing me about, you know, and I do think people are can be their best, their own best friend, have to draw on their own inner resources, and no one knows you as well as you know yourself. So if you can have someone be a good sounding board for you, which can be a good friend or it might be a health professional or a volunteer who helps you understand yourself a bit better, find within yourself your own solutions, people are more likely to stick to their own solutions. You know, that's that's the fact of it. We, we know ourselves, we know what we like, and if someone can help us find what our strengths are, what our best coping resources are, I think that's a great way to go. Yeah, that's an incredible, Suzanne. So how would you suggest you know, that people go about doing that, perhaps on their own or maybe you know, with, with their friends? How, how would you go about tapping into your own resources and, and finding solutions that are unique to you? Hmm. So I think there's some knowledge that people can gain by getting information. And there is so much information available for people with cancer. If they're in Australia, they can ring the cancer councils. There's a 13, 11, 20 toll-free number people can phone. There's so much online that you can look up as well. The framework that I have learned from people with cancer, again, that I've worked with, that seems to be most helpful is the stress and coping framework. So what that means is when cancer happens to you, it's a major life stress. In some ways, not that different to being in a car accident or having something really difficult happen to you where suddenly you feel threatened and the world seems different and you're not sure what to do. A book I have, the, I, I, dis, I discuss this, you will react in a way as if a tiger has just walked in front of you. You'll have the, you know, the flight or fight response and it's hormonally driven and we're built that way. We're built that way to help us survive. A lot of our reactions to things are instinctive. So if you understand that and you can understand why your body is acting that way, then that gives you some tips about specific strategies you can use that might be more helpful to you. Uh, I use an analogy where I say your approaches to coping are your toolbox and you need more than one tool to fix a car usually and you might need more than one tool for yourself. People have a tendency, we all do this, to have a particular way that we deal with difficulties. Some of us like to chat a lot. Some of us get emotional and express our emotions. Some of us like to hide away. Nothing wrong with any of that unless it's not working for you or you're overusing one strategy. So the real tips are to be flexible, to be prepared to think creatively and laterally about how you might cope with the situation, to seek information so that you're well-informed and uh to be your own best friend in that sense, to not be self-critical about how you're doing because in any difficult situation, we're all doing our best, we're all trying hard, we just might need a little extra help sometimes. That makes so much sense, Suzanne. And one of the things that really helped me was going on and learning as much as I could about my cancer, learning all about the different paths it can go, learning all about treatment and sort of becoming an expert <laughs> expert in it, if you will, uh, that gave me a lot of confidence to, first of all, feel comfortable about what's happening, and secondly, to um, ask informed questions when I was seeing a specialist. Do you find that that is a, a good way to go about as well? Absolutely, and I love the words you use because you are the expert in your own illness. You know, you have to really trust your own instincts on that. And I see so often 
people that I'm working with with cancer who just know so much about their illness because they get informed. And it really helps. It's good if you can try and get informed before you talk to the doctor, if that's possible, because it makes it more likely that you're going to really understand what he's talking about or she is talking about and be able to ask informed questions. Uh, there are lots of strategies that people will suggest, like write down questions before you go, take a buddy with you before you go to the doctor so that you've got an extra pair of ears. I think all those things are helpful. Work out with the doctor uh, when I need an extra question answered, who do I call for that? So setting yourself up so that you get home and you go, oh, I should have asked this, I really need to know that. You know how you're going to get that piece, in, piece of information. But again, as I sort of said earlier, there are lots of services around now, uh, much more so than when I first started working in cancer in the late 80s. There was really nothing around then. And in fact, back in those early years, we started running uh, group educational programs over a six-week period where we would get health professionals to come in and deliver talks for people. And we would have hundreds of people turning up. The room would fill out because there was not much online. There was not much on paper. There wasn't a helpline, not really, back then. But now there are lots of places people can go. There's people like yourself, you know. So uh, good to know what's out there. Be a canny consumer as well, though. You know, there are people out there who are suggesting things that are probably not helpful. So you've got to think, oh, what's the evidence for this? What's the likelihood that that really would be helpful? So you've got to be a bit discerning. Um, and again, that's where often your doctor or a good friend can play a role in saying, you know, really, is that a sensible idea or not? Yeah, absolutely. And do you see like this uh, dubious advice out there? And if so, in what areas? And, and how do you how do you separate, you know, the truth from from something that simply isn't isn't true? Yeah. So um, if it sounds too good to be true, it's probably not true. <laughs> That's a rule about everything, isn't it? That's a rule when I go to, to buy cosmetic. Is that really going to make me look 10 years younger? Not likely. That's, not likely. <laughs> that's a very girly example, but not. that's probably not going to be true. Is that really going to make me lose five kilos in the next week? Probably not. So sounds too good to be true. Probably not true. Uh, there are... Look, go to reputable websites, so Cancer Council Australia websites. There's the National Cancer Initiative in the US, good websites. Um, the back of my book has a list for prostate cancer of reputable websites, but uh, just put your sceptic hat on. Um, same goes for a um, whole range of things. I mean, you're, as a person with cancer, the same as anyone else, your money is an important resource for you and so is your time. So you want to make sure... If you're investing your time and your resources into something, you want some good evidence that it's going to be helpful. Absolutely. And um, Susanna, I know that you spent a huge amount of time, um, obviously, working with prostate cancer patients and survivors. Like, what are some of the unique challenges for folks with prostate cancer? Uh, and what, I guess, are some of the things that we have in common universally, everyone who's facing cancer in some shape or form? So... Cancer is a really stressful event for anyone, regardless of what cancer it is, really. Uh, no one wants to hear that word come out of their doctor. Uh, and it's distressing and, you know, all, regardless of the type of cancer, you'll worry about what does this mean for my future? What does this mean for my survival? Uh, how is this going to change my relationships? How is it going to change my ability to work, my ability to play? All of these things will go through a person's mind because 
The world is changed from a diagnosis of cancer. Everybody's world is changed from a diagnosis of cancer. And uh, some of the ways in which it changes will be this, sort of the same in the sense that the world can somehow not seem like the safe place that it seemed before. I think we all act as if nothing bad's ever going to really happen to us and we're not going to get cancer. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's kind of a normal, unrealistic optimism. But the reality is cancer is really common, you know. So if we don't get cancer, someone in our family is likely to get cancer. But for anyone, it's a shock when that happens. If you then start looking at what things make it harder or not so hard, it's harder on you if you get cancer when you're young because you're less established in life, you less expect to get cancer when you're young. Uh, if you've got dependent children, it's tougher because you've got all those financial responsibilities. If you're in a new relationship, it's tougher. If you don't have a lot of resources, if you're perhaps in a stage of life where you're struggling a little bit financially or in other ways, the added weight of cancer is extra hard. But having said that, regardless of your place in life, getting a cancer diagnosis is awful. You know, even when you're older, you, you don't expect to see that coming around the corner for most people. Where it differentiates more about the cancer itself is if, if your cancer's been picked up very early, obviously it's easier to be optimistic about that than if your cancer was picked up at a late stage, even though there are wonderful treatments for advanced cancer now as well. And then the type of side effects that you'll experience and how it's going to change your physical life is obviously that's going to be really dictated by where is your cancer and what sort of treatments do you have. So are you having radiation therapy? Are you having chemotherapy or hormone therapy? And each of those things will have particular side effects that a person will have to cope with, and they vary by cancer type. So in prostate cancer, things that worry men are things like urinary incontinence, although it's much less common these days, problems with erections and sexual life. If men have more advanced disease and they're put on a hormone-blocking therapy, then that causes problems with muscles muscles and muscle wastage um, and a range of other things. And, of course, for every cancer, it's different. Um, for some cancers, like lung cancer, a particular issue that people with lung cancer and their carers face is stigma. We think of cancer as not stigmatised anymore, but some cancers are, and people with lung cancer often feel like Folks think they deserve it because perhaps they smoked or even if they didn't smoke, people assume they did. Some cancers are hard to talk about because they're so personal, so bowel cancer can be hard for people to talk about and that makes it a bit tougher. There's all sorts of unique things that people might struggle with, although the core issue is being diagnosed with something that's potentially life-threatening. Yes, that is, that is uh, so true, Susan. And cancer, also, um, cancer diagnosis also changes your self-image, the way you see yourself. Do you think that's true? Look, I think so. It probably varies amongst individuals. I mean, I know uh, when I talk to some people, they say, I feel like a stronger person than I was before. I feel empowered in different ways because of what I've had to learn. But other people don't feel that. They feel that uh, this has left me not the same, in, not in such a good way, but I've learned to manage that. And then some people will say, I'm just the same person that I always was. So it's a pretty personal thing. And perhaps we can sort of think about this more broadly, that in life there are many difficult things that can befall us. We can lose a loved one, we can lose our job, 
we might end up in jail, God forbid, you know. But these the difficult things happen. Yeah. People, we might get divorced. We might lose a baby. All sorts of things can happen. And when these things happen to us, I guess I kind of think that they leave us with a mark that we have to learn to adjust to. And that's, that can be really tough to learn to come to terms with that and come to terms with do I feel different and in what way and how do I create my new self, I guess. You know, people talk sometimes about do you create a new self or do you become the same person. I think it's a personal journey and we all do that. We do that differently. We Most of us strive to try and find a meaning and, and learn something uh, and put ourselves back together and then we get on. But that's the nature of humanity, isn't it? Humanity is... That's yeah. the humanness of us all. We all are out there struggling with different things. And sometimes that thing we're struggling with is cancer. Absolutely. Absolutely, Suzanne. And that's why I love your uh, analogy of cancer, you know, as a tiger, because it makes this experience feel real. It makes you feel, uh, go through this physical fear. And it's like being sad and anxious. But as you say, reacting this way is very natural. But having this range of emotions is really not helpful to you. So when it, when it comes to trying to deal with this, could you talk about why there is, and what are some of the key skills and strategies someone can use to, to deal with cancer in a better way? Oh, sure thing. You know, the analogy of cancer as a tiger I got from urologists that I work with who used to say to me, some prostate cancers are pussycats because they're very low grade and they're not ever going to do much, and some are tigers. And they used to say to me, we want to catch the tigers. <laughs> and that kind of stuck in my mind about that. And then I thought, well, you know, it is it is like a tiger in many ways because it's that physical threat. So the things to remember are there are two broad categories. Well, they say th- the broad categories of coping with a major life stress and with cancer. One of them is what we call emotion-focused coping. So that's trying to deal with the sadness or the anxiety. So that could be crying, talking and talking, um, running, trying to physically get that sense out of us, Um more of the um, stuff that's aimed, things that we do that's aimed at trying to relieve that feeling of sadness and tension. Then there is problem-focused coping, which is coping where we go, right, I'm going to get the information, I'm going to understand this, I'm going to find out what I'm going to do, and I'm going to apply a plan. Both are important, and you need a balance of both together. The third type of coping that has been incorporated into this model is meaning-focused coping. And so that's where we go, I've got to find a way in my head to understand how I can fit this within my life story in a way that feels okay for me. So it doesn't mean that I have to say, oh, it was a good thing, I'm glad I had cancer. Really, that is not a <laughs> goal because, of course, you, you don't want to have cancer. But it's trying to set it in a sense of coherence of your life in a sense. So what I say to people is these are all the different ways that you can cope and you'll have your own preferences for coping. So for some people, crying and talking to friends might be so so not in their list of things to do, they don't want to do that. And so I go, that's okay, what else can you do to get that emotion out? It might be that you might go for a walk in nature or you might watch a movie or distract yourself, a whole range of things you can do. You might learn stress management techniques and try those. I, I worked for, um, at, many years ago, I worked on a um, program where I was doing therapy with women with gynecological cancer and their husbands. And part of my 
bag of tricks, so to speak, was to teach people deep breathing and relaxation exercises as a way, it's emotion-focused coping to try and reduce those feelings of stress. And I, it's my first lesson, I guess, about um, what blokes generally don't like to do. <laughs> so often <laughs> the chaps would say, there is no way I'm going to do progressive relaxation. But what I will do is I'll go out and hose the garden and be quiet for a while. So finding different ways of distraction, of getting some peace, of trying to manage those emotions, while at the same time knowing that getting information and making a plan and making informed decisions can be helpful as well. But the key, again, is the flexibility. If you're doing, if you have one way of coping and that's all you do, that's probably not going to be that helpful in the sense. My example there is if you're in the doctor's office and he's trying to do an unpleasant procedure to you, like take blood or something like that, closing your eyes and imagining you're in Bali or somewhere else and fantasizing that you're somewhere else is probably a good way <laughs> to dissociate from the unpleasantness of someone sticking a needle into you. But if you're in the kitchen and a family member comes in and wants to talk about the cancer, closing your eyes and imagining yourself in Bali is not going to be helpful. It's, going to be <laughs> it's not going to work. Well, it'll get an outcome that might not be pleasant. So it's just you know, try different things, be a bit playful sometimes, and give yourself a break. People are so judgmental about their own reactions and uh, and are thinking, I should be stronger than this, I shouldn't be upset. Well, stop doing the shooting to yourself. You know, it's okay to get upset sometimes, and you are doing the best you can, so don't judge yourself. Be kind and compassionate to yourself and be your own best friend. That is so true. I guess we put so much pressure on ourselves to, to be this way or that. And you mentioned the, the, the third way, which is um, third way of coping, which is when uh, you, you're incorporating, I guess, cancer as, as part of how you see yourself, uh, not necessarily in, in a way that you're saying, oh, well, so, so great that it's happened. Um, could you talk about that a little bit? And, and is there a way to, to incorporate that into your daily life? So I think... It's one of those things where it, we, we call it, psychologists have a fancy name for everything so that you all think that we're clever. Um, <laughs> cognitive processing, the idea that when you have an experience at some level in your mind, you're working it through in your head. And um, I'm sure many people will recognize this experience where they've had something they can't figure out the answer to and they go for a long walk and suddenly without even any apparent stimuli, the answer pops into your head because at some level you've been processing it and working it out. So um, I think coming to the point where you've made some meaning out of this experience is a matter of cognitive processing. Uh, things that help processing are allowing yourself to be sad, not insisting that you be upbeat all the time, giving yourself permission to be sad. I think talking it through every now and again with someone, you don't have to talk about it all the time, but talking it through every now and again, you'll come to that point um, eventually. I know I had um, a very difficult experience for me last year when my mother was diagnosed with cancer and she had a very advanced esophageal cancer, so she only lived for six months. And because I was so busy looking after her for the six months, I didn't have, I couldn't let myself process it because I was, had too much to do to look after her and make things the best that I could. And then I think it took me a good six months after that till I finally 
had worked it through enough in my head that I didn't feel angry anymore and I could talk about it in a reasonable way and I think I'd come to a sense of peace about that. So the time frame for coming to a sense of peace about what's happened varies, uh, but it's important to try and, you know, we want to get to a sense of peace. We don't want to have this chip on our shoulder or this monkey on our back forever. Um, so I don't have a recipe for that other than, you know, allowing yourself to think, allowing yourself to be sad. Sometimes people find it helps to write stuff down, um, picking your mark for when you want to talk it through with someone, test out ideas about what you think this is, and allowing it to change. I know um, people I know who early on for the first few years after their cancer felt very tied up in their cancer identity and really saw this is who I am now, I'm a cancer survivor and I'm going to have a very high profile doing this. And then after five years or ten years or whatever or one year, they decided I'm done with that now and I'm moving on to a different primary identity. Uh, so no rules for what's right and wrong, just finding your path. Yeah, no, I'm sorry to hear uh, to hear about your mom, Suzanne. Thank you. Yeah, I know in the book, uh, I think you talk in a very profound way about making decisions under stress. How does it work and, and what can someone do to make better decisions when, when they're facing cancer? So one of the um, ways I describe it in the book is that uh, you think of your brain as your cognitive, cognitive just means thinking, your thinking works, it's your thinking workspace. And uh, it's where we toss ideas around, we weigh them up. So when you're anxious, when you're very anxious, your cognitive workspace or your thinking space becomes a bit more cluttered. It's harder to find things and it's harder to move them around. So, um, And you're more prone to making a decision that you might later regret just because it's hard to think it through. So understanding that just means that if you're in an emotionally charged situation, like you've just been told that you've got cancer, most of the time there is no need to make an immediate decision. Remember that you're in shock, you're trying to come, you know, how has this happened, what does it mean for me? There might be some circumstances where an immediate decision is needed, but that is not often the case. So sometimes the best decision is I'm not going to make a decision till I've had a chance to just settle down a little bit, talk to some friends, read some stuff, maybe get a second opinion and take some time with it. Uh, you can go through a structured process of writing down the pros and the cons. It sounds really boring and mechanistic. I know I had a friend whose um, partner was diagnosed with breast cancer and they were making a decision about chemotherapy. And I said to her, this is going to sound really boring, but I want you to go. I want you to write down <laughs> the choices you've been given and I want you to do the lists of the pros and cons and then I want you to circle with red the things that you really want to avoid and then see how it looks. And these were, you know, very intelligent people who kind of looked at me a bit funny but went, okay, and then later said, you know, that actually really, really helped because the processes of writing that down and really weighing it up, it suddenly became really clear to us what decisions we needed to make. So that's a pretty straightforward process. These days I was interested to read the other day. It's got a fancy name. They even now call it design thinking. <laughs> it's a, <laughs> agree with that. But it's true. It's about being open to different solutions, thinking laterally, getting all the information, and then weighing up the pros and cons, and then um, your decision will emerge. 
that, uh, that is uh, so true, and, and it's good to hear that I have intuitively figured out design thinking <laughs> when I was going through treatment, uh, because I actually wrote down uh, these options on, on, on a piece of paper, and I kind of weighed it up with all the, you know, the percentages of, of the likelihood, and I have to say it really helped me because it put things into perspective, I kind of go, oh, so... When I when I look at it like that on a piece of paper, it actually makes it real, you know. Yeah, it's you know it's a good process to do for anything really. If you're going to make a hard decision, writing down the pros and cons of each possible option. The trick is too to be really creative at the outset. So don't restrict yourself. Brainstorm any possible solution. There's a step before that actually, I should say, which is getting clear about what the problem actually is, because sometimes you can think it's all about choosing treatment but there may be something before that that's bothering you so getting really clear about first of all what is the problem now what are all the possible solutions to that what would be the pros and cons of each and then highlighting for yourself which ones matter to you most because values come into it we're not um, computers our brains are not computers and people rarely make a decision based just on the data we'll have personal preferences for things some people will say i've had people men say to me i don't care i'm just never having radiation therapy or i don't care i'm just never having surgery and they'll have personal reasons for that that often relate to other things that have happened in their lives if that really is their feeling and that's what they want to go with then they need to understand that it's like when you think about uh, this is a bit of a blokey analogy so when you buy a car, <laughs> And you buy a Holden, for example. Did you buy a Holden because that was the best car? Did you buy a Holden because your dad always bought Holdens? Or like if yep. you're buying a, you know, any anything that you buy. Why did you make that choice to buy that brand? Often it's because in your family that was the talk about what's the best thing to buy. So it's a shortcut decision making strategy. Now we tend to do shortcut decision making. There's nothing inherently bad about that, but sometimes we might want to just have a bit more of a process than just the shortcut. Exactly, because we think that we are so rational when we're actually not. That's right. But I don't think that's a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, uh, as you say, it's important to acknowledge that uh, some of those things are irrational. And, and when, you, when you use a, a structured approach, it gives you, gives you some more confidence around what's happening. And I guess that that could also help with, with dealing with like negative intrusive thoughts that, that you get when, when you have cancer that you can't just get out of your head. Like, is there, is there anything we can do, Suzanne, to make that better, to make those thoughts go away or stop for a period of time? Or what can we do? So it's a really good point because it is really common to have intrusive thoughts. So for people who don't know what that means, it's, it's for example, you've been told that you've got cancer and suddenly wherever you are, a thought, an unpleasant negative thought about the cancer just pops into your head and, and upsets you. And we hate them. Most people don't like these intrusive things. But, but the trouble is, if you push it down and you suppress it, you make it stronger. If you tell yourself, I'm not going to think about white Holdens, I'm sticking with the car thing, you'll start thinking about Holdens. <laughs> like, you know, if you tell yourself, it's just a, just a weird thing that happens. And so, if when you get an intrusive thought, you go, oh, that's terrible, I must not think that, I must not think that, you will make it worse, okay? So the first thing I would say is that intrusive thoughts like that popping into your head, it's just normal when something like this happens. And so don't 
say to yourself, I'm obviously not coping well, I shouldn't be having those thoughts. It's normal to have those thoughts. And those thoughts will be stronger if you've got an appointment with the doctor coming up or if you put the TV on and someone's talking about cancer, there are things that might trigger those. It's part of processing the cancer experience. Now, if the intrusive thinking gets so bad, though, that you can't sleep or it's really making you anxious all the time, then you can go and see someone to help you with starting to challenge those intrusive thoughts. So in cognitive behavioural therapy, and I go through this in the book, there's a process of saying, first of all, become aware of the thoughts that you're having that are driving your distress because sometimes you're not even aware that they're there. So first of all, if you suddenly find that you're feeling distressed, check yourself, what's in my head, and write it down. So you keep a little bit of a diary about what your intrusive thoughts or, the, or, your, or your worries are that keep popping up. And that way then you can look at them and you can see if there's a pattern. Now, it's quite well known that there are typical patterns that people will have. So there's black and white thinking. It's got to be all this way or it's all terrible. There's that sort of black and white or all or nothing catastrophizing. Oh, if this has happened, therefore everything is going to be terrible. So that's another common pattern. Uh, Self-blame. Oh, this has happened. Now it's my fault and everybody's going to have a miserable life and it's all down to me getting cancer. So there's a, there's a number of different patterns and it's normal. Most of us do it. It's like those of us who, if you go to the car park and you can't see the car, you immediately either think it's stolen or you think I must have left it on a different floor. <laughs> you know, like, and the reality is the same for people who think either one. It's just that the person who thinks it's stolen gets really upset and the person who thinks they put it on another floor just goes, oh, that's boring. I'll have to go and look somewhere else. Same objective thing <laughs> happened. Emotional reaction to the two things yeah. very different. So how you think does influence how you feel and an awareness of that and understanding your own personal patterns so that you can then challenge that. It's um, it's like a common thing that drives insomnia, for example, is people who can't sleep will often put their head on the pillow. Immediately their thoughts are full of negative worries about the cancer or about anything, and then they compound it by then negatively saying, and now I can't sleep and I won't sleep, and they get more anxious and they're less likely to sleep. So we can torture ourselves very well with our own thinking, <laughs> Um, and I do it too. You know, it doesn't mean you're crazy. I do it overall. I'm the one. Do I think? I think I usually would think probably the car was stolen. Although as I get older, I realize it's more likely I left it on the wrong floor. <laughs> but um, really it is. You know, it's normal. But you can get a little bit of mastery with it. A different approach to the thoughts, with, which some people like, is um, mindfulness, which stems from Buddhist tradition and, and meditation. That doesn't work. For me very well personally but I know it works for other people so you can try different things you can try challenging your thoughts and replacing them with a helpful thought so oh no I'm sure my car has not been stolen I'm sure I left it on another floor and immediately calm you down a bit same sort of thing with cancer or mindfulness is more about um, becoming aware of the negative thoughts and then seeing them just as a thought in the present moment and trying to separate yourself emotionally from the thought. Uh, and you can get people who can, you know, there are, if you want to learn how to do that type of coping strategy, you can get self-help materials about mindfulness or you can get someone to teach it to you. Uh, or you can do 
cognitive challenging, the one that uh, I've just talked about before. Another approach is to try and uh, distract yourself to be more more focused on what you're really trying to achieve, what your goals are. There are kind of, most psychologists and nurse counsellors will have a range of different types of strategies that if a person feels like it's getting on top of them a bit and they're not... um, they want to. They want to feel differently, and get someone to teach it to you. Absolutely. And uh, so, Susan, if, if you you start writing things down, and you notice a particular pattern that comes up, let's say it's self-blame or something else, how do you challenge it? How do you turn it around? Yeah. So, um, you ask yourself a question: Is this a realistic thought? And what is the evidence that this is a realistic thought? So, I've got a pain in my toe. I'm sure the cancer has moved there. Okay, hold it. Let me pull back for a minute. What is the realistic evidence that that is the case? And so you can challenge that thought with fact. And then you can ask yourself a secondary question to say, is this a helpful thought to have? Is it helping me to think in this way? What can I practically do about the thing that I'm worried about? Is this helpful? So you're challenging the veracity and the helpfulness of that thought. And then you say to yourself, what's a better way to think? So replace that thought with a more helpful thought. It's not about, oh, everything's just fine, I'm just going to think positive. Not at all. It's about coming up with a way of answering yourself that um, helps you to feel better about the situation. So it might be, you know, I've got that pain in my toe, but it's unlikely to be the cancer because I had my checkup last week and I was fine and I'll be seeing the doctor again. That's not helpful for me to think this way. What else can I focus on? I probably kicked my toe or it's a bit of gut or whatever. And then focus, direct my attention to something else that is more helpful. Absolutely. And Suzanne, I know that uh, cancer is incredibly hard, not just for people who go through it themselves, but also for, for their families. Like I know it's been incredibly tough on, on my wife and my, my mom. What would you say to, to someone who's supporting their partner or someone who's close to them through cancer? Mm. So it's really tough being the partner or the family member because you have to put yourself second. There's no question about that. The person with cancer has got the cancer. Your job is to support them and look after them. But you have your own fears and worries and concerns and it can be exhausting. So I think... First of all, you've got to understand that as a partner, you're doing the best you can. I think carers, partners can feel negative about themselves if they're not able to relieve their person's fears and worries and can be unrealistic about what they can do. So you do the best you can to look after uh, the person that you love who has cancer But you remember that they're a person still too. It doesn't give them permission to just be awful all the time. (laughs) They can be awful occasionally, (laughs) but they're still a real person. You know, that's that's what I say. I remember many years ago someone describing to me their relative who was being really, really difficult, but relative had cancer. And I said, I listened to this tale and long story, and I said, what were they like before? And they said, just the same. <laughs> I said, your answer. Cancer's not going to turn into a better person overnight. So let's put it in context here and let's work it through. So in the end, we're all people, you know, and we've got our own personalities. Partners need to, to self-care. They need to give themselves a break. They need to every now and again go, no, I'm going out and I'm doing whatever. 
and don't, um, you know, I know in my own family, I've got, you know, my family's full of people who've gotten cancer and every now and again I've thought, oh, that's a bit much. <laughs> you know, you just got to negotiate that. Yeah. Be prepared to say, no, oh, I can't do it. I've got to have a break. And the person with cancer, you know, it's like a conversation, I suppose. It's like any relationship in a family where two different people, we're doing our best to look after each other. We'll have misunderstandings occasionally. You need to talk it through when you can. I say to, I say this in my book. I say, you know, you need to talk about the cancer every now and again, but you don't have to talk about it all the time. So negotiating those things in some way and working as a team. best thing people can do is work together as a team within the family and within a relationship. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's just the one thing that surprised me was that when I had cancer and, and I had, you know, friends and people I knew would say, just let me know how I can help. And I found it to be the most useless thing that you, you can say to someone because the reality is that now you're, you're, you're in effect asking me to come up with a way to ask you for a favor, right? Uh, do you think that other, like, better ways do you find to ask for help that would actually, you know, encourage people to be more positive. Yeah, I I suppose it's a cultural thing, isn't it? But a, a lot of us come from cultural backgrounds where being stoic is the thing, you know. We don't need help. We're just going to get in and we're going to march on through. And I'm a, I'm a bit like that my, myself. I think part of that is our responsibility when we need help as a carer, as a patient, to know that there are people who are close to us who would love to help us but don't know what to do. You know, and rather than feeling indebted to them, it's like a gift for them. They're watching you suffer. They want to help you. They don't know what it is that would be helpful. So I guess what, what I do with my friends when they're going through an experience like this, and, and I will, you know, and we all are going to have these experiences, I will actually be explicit. I really want to do something to be helpful, but I'm not sure what that would be. <laughs> Give me a hint and I yep. propose things. Would you like me to take the kids out for the night? Would you like me to just pop over for a coffee? Um, can I cook you something? You know, do you want me to just stop speaking? <laughs> really, I <laughs> person about um, what it is that I need you to do. And similarly, when I was the person who needed help, you know, when I was looking after my mother, I learned to be very explicit about what I was that I needed. This is happening right now. It would be great if you would do X. You know, and I. I had to be explicit because people couldn't read my mind. They didn't know what it was, what it really what it was happening with me, and what and the sort of help that I needed was practical help. You know, so I had some very, very fortunate. I had very good friends who were able to go right. I can help you problem solve that problem, Suzanne, and and work that through. So I I think sometimes the problem is in ourselves, in that we are, we're a bit of a stoic nation, you know, in many ways. Not everyone, of course, it differs, but um, the tendency to think you've got to be strong. But sometimes being strong means being prepared to ask for help. Yeah, that's fantastic advice, Suzanne, because sometimes you you just need to be uh, very straightforward and direct about what you need. Well, well, that's it, whether it's saying, you know, your neighbor's driving you crazy. Can I drag them off for you? You know, what can I I do? (laughs) You know, really practical things. And some of that as a carer and a friend and supporter is just being observant. Notice what's going on and, and see if you can notice what's an external stressor that's affecting the person you care about and try and get that away from them if you can. And I always think practical help's a really good thing. Can I come over and shall we go for a walk together? Can I, you know, what can I do? 
Absolutely. And as you point out in the book, it takes special courage to really deal with cancer. And what could someone do to be more resilient through these tough times? I think everybody who's coping with cancer has courage because they get up the next morning and they face whatever is in front of them. And I think we probably don't recognize our own courage often enough. It's really just all the things that I'm talking about. When you need support, seek it. If people offer you support and it would be helpful, take it. Um, Look around you at what is available for you. Find things that give value and pleasure in your life and build them in. Do those things. Take time for yourself. Think If you think of your energy as like a bucket and difficult times leak water out of that bucket, you've got to put water back in. So find ways to fill your bucket. Absolutely. In your experience, Suzanne, what are some of the most common misconceptions that people have around cancer? Um, that's a hard question, actually. What, do, what would I think there? I guess people fear cancer treatments, but cancer treatments can be difficult, but there are good supportive care services and treatments around to help you get through that. As a person with cancer, you should know that your opinion is important and what you want is important. Uh, You have a right to a second opinion and to ask questions, and if your doctor won't do that for you, get another one. You have a right to have care centred around your needs, and you might need to be assertive about that. And we all know now cancer is not contagious. Um, And, (laughs) you know, that used to be people used to shy away from people with cancer. That's not so much the case anymore. Uh, Try to... Find out information so that you can allay many of your fears and understand realistically what is ahead of you. Know that most people cope with cancer pretty well. They get through it. They move through it. They, the, the sky looks blue again. You know, you can feel like um, I had a sister who had breast cancer when she was quite young and I, you know, even though I worked in the field, I was absolutely shocked and I still have this memory of where I was, I just... I'm a bit of a catastrophizer. You might have picked that up, but I just thought it. My job job was to look after her, and and suddenly the world looked like a worse place for me, a dark place. But do you know, one day suddenly I noticed the sky was blue again, you know, and I felt like that was like I was never going. I was so sad. I felt like that sky was never going to be blue and beautiful again, but it was. You know, it took some time, but it got there. So... It can be hard sometimes to know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, but there usually is. We Sometimes we've just got to be a bit patient till we get there. Yes, and Susan, you, you met a lot of folks going through cancer. Was there a moment that, that touched you the most? Oh, do you know what I think? I think when I was first in the field and I was a mother of a young baby and I found... I if I was working with parents who had small children who had cancer, I think that's because I could so imagine them, imagine me in their, in their place. And that must be one of the hardest things to face. But again, what I learn over time is how strong people really are and how parents can band to get through that experience. So, you know, it's difficult. There's difficulty in life that comes to us and, uh, no, no one cancer is better or worse, in a sense, really, to the person that's experiencing that. It's what matters to them right now. Someone once said to me, you know, Suzanne, suffering's not a competition. <laughs> and I thought that was a great statement <laughs> when I heard that because uh, I think at the time I was going, oh, it could be worse. And they were saying, so what, you want your leg broken as well? <laughs> so it's just <laughs> a competition. 
And so people should remember that. We have a tendency to go, oh, it could be worse or it could be better. You know, it's your experience that matters. That is so true. Susanna, as a researcher, did you ever stumble upon something that made you go, wow, this is really special? I'm onto something here. Do you know, the special things I have learned have more been talking to people with cancer. So I'm a hardworking researcher, work hard at trying to make things better for people with cancer. That's the point of my research. But the most beautiful insights I get from people who've talked to me about what they're going through, and I suppose what that's taught me is just how different everybody is, how um, how special people are, how in terms of their ability to look at what's happening to them, to be so, from my external point of view, I see people in very difficult circumstances who are doing such a great job, you know, and I marvel at the ability of human beings to help each other and to look after their families. That's a special piece. That's, that's really amazing. Um, Susan, thank you. Thank you so much for your time and everything you've shared here. This is really fantastic. And Susan, if someone wanted to find your book, how would they go about it? Okay, so the book is called Facing the Tiger, a guide for people with pro- men with prostate cancer and those who love them. And it is published by Australian Academic Press. And so you can look them up online and buy a copy. It is also listed in Amazon in an electronic version that you can download to your Kindle or whatever. And uh, you should be able to, if you Google Suzanne Chambers Facing the Tiger, you should be able to find it. But Australian Academic Press will have copies and, um, and as I said, Amazon sells it as well. Thank you so much, Suzanne. It's been profound. Thank you so much for your time as well, Joe.